Well, this morning in the third part of our series on simple spirituality, I'm going to talk about uh, the discipleship of technology. How should Christians best relate to technology in a way that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and loves our neighbours as, as ourselves? How do we master our technological devices rather than let them master us? The author, um, uh, hang on a second, I'm just going to wait, here we go, here we go. Yeah. The author, um, Annie Dillard, wrote, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. So much of our days are now spent interacting with our devices and being online. Hours each day. For many of us, we wake up with our device and we turn it on, we look at our updates, we watch or read the news. We doom scroll through the horrible news in our social media accounts. And the current estimate is that the average adult living today will spend 44 years of their life online. How we spend our lives matters. This lies at the heart of biblical wisdom. In our famous passage from Ecclesiastes 3, the teacher tells us that our sovereign God has set all the times for how history will unfold. He has made everything suitable for its time. And he concludes that I know that whatever God does endures forever. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. And if you go to the New Testament, Jesus sort of taps into this idea and says that um, at the right time in God's wisdom, he will send the Son of Man but about that day and hour, no one knows, only the Father. And so what should we do? Well, Jesus tells us that we should keep awake and we should be ready. But the thing is, modern technology draws our attention away from being people who are awake and who are ready for the return of Jesus. Instead of being people who are ready and active and living in anticipation and hope, we are amusing ourselves to death, addicted to our devices. Also, part of what it means to be alert as people who are to love our neighbour is to be aware of the people around us and what is going on. As the writer to the Ecclesiastes said, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. We want to build memories with each other that last our lifetime. We want to live and die in each other's arms. But this requires us to be focused on what really matters. Technology can so easily numb us and separate us from the people around us. I bring you this topic uh, acknowledging that it's one of those ones which is a problem for me. I feel it as an individual who is too uh, dependent on my devices. But I also feel this problem as a parent, um, as Joe and I wage a daily battle um, against screens for the attention of our children. We literally go nuclear in our family with our attempts to stop the boys 
from going onto screens. We hide the power cable to the TV. We, we have passwords on all the devices. We have rules, we have time limits, and still we feel like we often lose the war. On the other hand, I have to say, I do love technology. I don't want you to think I'm some kind of Luddite. As a kid, I was the first captain of the Ivanhoe Grammar School Computer Club, a club which I actually started and made myself captain, I, I admit. Um, so my thoughts this morning uh, come from very two, uh, two really great books, um, which I, I want to recommend to you. Um, the, the first one is um, the one on the left, uh, by Andy Crouch, my um, the TechWise family, and then the follow up to that book was him, Amy, Amy, his daughter, and he wrote together. I think it's mainly Amy who wrote it. Uh, my TechWise life, um, growing up and making choices in a world of devices. Um, both books are really thoughtful um, uh, Christian books on on how to develop dev- discipleship of technology. Um, uh, I recommend anything that Andy Crouch writes. He's a, he's a really smart guy and he's really, really um, important leader in the church in America. And they've used research from the Barna Group, which is a polling, uh, an evangelical Christian polling group in America. And so they've got really hard stats that they're working with on patterns of behavior. Well, what we learn um, as we think about um, a, technolo- a discipleship of technology is a series of problems that we face as Christians. And here's our first big problem. And I'm going, to list, I'm, going to, I'm going to list several problems. Unlike the tools human beings developed in the past, modern technology has been developed with a commercial imperative and developed not necessarily out of actual need. Now most devices are sold to us with two promises marketed. First, and the first promise is, now you're going to be able to do something or other. And the second promise is now you won't have to do something or other. And this strategy to allure us goes all the way back to Genesis. Because it's a strategy that's t- that tells us that if we, do, if we embrace this new device or piece of technology, we'll actually improve as human beings. And, and if you think back to the story of Genesis, where the snake promised Adam and Eve that, forbidden fruit from the tree in the center of the garden. It was actually good to eat, said the snake, that would make them wise and that they wouldn't die. This is kind of sums up our problem with technology. We invite these devices into our lives because we think they'll make life easier, that we'll be a better person, that our life will be more fulfilled. I hear parents say over and over again to me that um, despite knowing all the risks the reason they have given their teenager or, or child a mobile phone was because they needed it to travel to and from school and because they didn't want them to miss out on making friends. We've come to a point where we have just accepted that the technology is here and despite all the things we know that are a problem, without resistance, we've let our guard down and stopped thinking about it because we think that it's actually going to improve our lives. And at best, Christians we, we will think about the messages that they are consuming through their technology, but rarely do Christians think about the technology itself and what it is doing to them. But the truth is, we have a choice. 
we have to be aware that modern technology is not neutral. It should be treated as objects that require discipline and wisdom. The main story in the last 100 years of technology is that easy is good and easy should be everywhere. This is the basic promise of technology, easy everywhere. Think about the change in how human beings have warmed their houses. Once we had to tend to the fire, we had to get the wood and kindling, set it up, light it, and keep tending it so that it doesn't go out. But in the 20th century, heating technology came so that all you have to do is flick a switch and the house warms up. Or you can just set a thermostat and it comes on automatically to your preferred room temperature. The heating device requires nothing from us apart from paying the bills. Technology says you should make that trade whenever you can. Whenever you can reduce burdens and reduce friction, it's a good thing, says modern technology, because it would be good for the quality of your life. There's a German-American philosopher, Albert Borgman. He's a philosopher of technology, and he calls this a shift from things to devices, from fireplaces to central heating, from candles to sophisticated lighting systems, from wooden tables to laminate, from shoelaces to Velcro, from pens to speech-to-text software, from dictionaries to spell check, from reading the book to watching the TED talk, from making craft work by hand to automated machines, from performing to each other for fun and doing physical activities together to home entertainment systems. Now modern technology has made it possible so that we can arrange our social world as well. So we think to ourselves, how can I communicate what matters to me to the people that matter to me. And social media comes along and says, I know, we'll make it easy for you to send out your thoughts, your news about your family, your photos. Connecting to people is going to be so easy. And you can experience what only celebrities experienced in the past, which is a kind of a mediated fame. Now, actually, if we think back to human history, it seems that we made a wrong turn. Perhaps it was in the 19th century, maybe it was in the early 20th century. We could have said, I don't want my life to be made easier by technology. I don't want the process of getting my thoughts into the world to involve less friction. I want technology to help me to do better at communicating. I want technology to be an instrument that helps me develop skills at being a person. But we didn't make that turn. We took the wrong turn. And now we're in trouble. See, if I stand face to face with you and you tell me that you've just got a new job or you've finished your uni degree or whatever it is, and we're face to face, I am forced to come up with a physical human response of joy to you. And that often requires a bit of effort, a bit of emotional intelligence and empathy. But Facebook has come up with an easy everything solution. So all I have to do is click on a thumbs up. Similarly, if I see you in the street and you tell me that someone 
you love has just died. I have to show empathy to you, cry with you, tell you that I care about you and how sorry I am. But social media lets me just press a button of a yellow face hugging a heart or cuddling or a yellow face crying. These are really obvious examples of the way modern technology is dehumanizing us with this easy everywhere with, with regard to relationships technology. It's stopping us from becoming wider, wiser or more courageous or more mature. Here's another problem. And the problem is we are weak. The Apostle Paul famously wrote in Romans 7 verse 15, I do not understand what I do for what I do, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And this is one of the great paradoxes of modern technology. If I was to survey you, I'm sure I'd find that most of you would prefer to see people in person rather than on Zoom and to have more intentional gatherings and meals together than on Facebook. And yet often we text rather than call and send an email rather than write a letter. We WhatsApp the group saying, praying, rather than actually praying and giving our friend a call. And so what happens? Loneliness creeps in because the illusion of our so-called online relationships fall away when we struggle and really need our friends. And we find that they were just easy everywhere, virtual friends who would not be there for us when we really needed them. We were promised that our tech would make it easier to relate to all our friends, family and colleagues. But in actual fact, it hasn't made it easier. And in many ways, it's added to the burden because with this amplified ability to communicate, we feel the pressure and expectation to follow more trends and engage with all the issues in the world, which we can't possibly do. Here's a third problem. Being a Christian involves exercising spiritual disciplines, which require our time, our attention and resources. But new technology is very effective at zapping up our time and harnessing our attention. As we think about how to develop a discipleship approach to technology, we have to be aware of what authors Thaler and Sunstein call the nudge. And they, and they wrote a book about this. What is, what, is, what is a nudge? Nudges are small changes in the environment around us that make it easier for us to make the choices we want to make or want others to make. Nudges don't force us to act, but they, act, they make acting a certain way much easier. Nudges put the choice right in front of us without us realising it. When I was a kid, I was really into magic tricks. And uh, one of the methods that magicians used is called a force. Not the force as in Star Wars, but a force. So it's often used in card tricks. You know, when the magician says, pick a card, any card, any card at all. You think you're picking the card that you want to pick. But in actual fact, the magician uses a special trick called a force. And there's lots of them and you pick the card that they want you to pick. They basically use a combination of nudges and sleight of hand to make it happen. And human psychology tells us that we find it very difficult to make decisions that go against our instincts. Nudges take advantage of this, and that's what the magicians are doing. An example of the nudge 
is the rack of lollies and chewing gum at the checkout in the supermarket. They know how much we find it hard to resist lollies, so they put them there knowing that we're likely to buy it. We weren't thinking about eating a cherry ripe. We only came to the supermarket for a bag of potatoes, but we come home with a cherry ripe as well. The engineers and designers of modern technology have become geniuses at the nudge. All day we are inundated with notifications, updates, beeps and bops, and they've come up with algorithms that efficiently um, worm these devices into our heads. The biggest nudge, of course, is making um, our mobile phone, which is now a, a powerful computer, in our pocket. It's in our pocket. It's always there. We're always getting the nudge. The TV being at the centre of the living room is a kind of a nudge. We wouldn't necessarily turn it on if it re required more effort, but it's there, so we do. And we've got a remote to make it easy. But deep inside, we don't want our lives to be filled with responding to the nudges of our devices. We want a life of friendship and conversation and a life of meaning rather than a life of distractions. So a clue to the way forward is to set up better and smarter nudges for ourselves. We need to think about how technology can be redemptive, how it can help us flourish. How it can help us to be alert to the working of the Holy Spirit. How it can help us appreciate the beauty of God's good creation. How it can help us to live and die in the arms of our Christian brothers and friends. Brothers and sisters and friends. The, the very fact that in this worldwide pandemic we're able to meet on Zoom as a church remotely and see each other and pray for each other demonstrates that you can redeem technology. So let's have a bit of a think about this. And I'm using a framework that Andy Crouch came up with um, and that I find really good and helpful. I'm gonna list a whole bunch of things that show how technology can be redemptive and be in its proper place and help human flourishing and how it can be non-redemptive and out of place and diminishing. First of all, we've gotta see how technology can help us bond with real people. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with the real people we have been given to love. But it's out of its proper place when we end up bonding with people at a distance, like celebrities whom we will never meet. There's nothing that boils my blood more than when I'm at a social gathering of friends or family and I see adults disengaging by doom scrolling on their phones or sending constant texts or playing games rather than having conversation. So let technology prompt you to actual human interaction. Our church is full of WhatsApp groups, and I'm sure most of you will be part of other WhatsApp groups as well, apart from church groups. And I actually do find them helpful, but they're not a substitute for real interaction. Let the WhatsApp group be a facilitator of real human interaction. The reason we have the catch up at the end of the Zoom service is to promote a bit more actual human interaction. We are nudging you towards conversation and developing relationships. This is also why we have community groups. It is a habit. It's a nudge, a weekly nudge that enables the building of relationships, of prayer and Bible reading. You can spend your days reading crappy articles about Prince Harry and the new Britney Spears documentary coming out. Or you can get to know real people 
Let the technology facilitate real relationships and real conversations. Thirdly, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm go back, go back one. There you go. Secondly, uh, technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversations. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking with and listening to one another. One of the phenomena that people are disparaging about with social media is the way it is causing us to be polarized politically and it's pushing us into echo chambers. The algorithms put in front of us updates from people, uh, it thinks are just like us. So when I use Facebook, I get so annoyed because I see majority Anglican clergy. I don't want to see majority Anglican clergy. I want to see my old school friends. I want to see old museo friends. I want to see people who are living all around the world. I've got, I think, about 2,000 friends or something, or fake Facebook friends at least. So why do I only see pale male and stale clergy updates? It's so annoying. And when there's a controversial topic, the worst thing that, that I can do is just stay in my social media bubble. What is going on there? Hmm. I think Ezra is drawing on my slide on another screen that shows you our family. Okay. Can you just get him off, Joe? Thanks. Um, disciples of Jesus do well when we are disciplined with the conversations we have on social media. We learn to listen and not say aggressive things against people we disagree with. Basically, we should apply the same principles to human interaction in the real world to the virtual world. Thirdly, apologies for the Ezra Blue Scribble. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us to take care of the fragile bodies we inhabit. It's out of its proper place when it promises to help us escape the limits and vulnerabilities of those bodies altogether. This goes back to our first topic from this sermon series on the body. There's been some solid research to show a direct link between a sharp rise in mental health problems amongst teenage girls and the use of Instagram. So the parents, I urge you to not think your children are the exception to the rule. They are not. You have to be vigilant. I know that you don't like to say no to the kids, but do everything you can to delay their use of social media. Four, uh, creativity. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us to be creative with the arts as well as the sport and science. When we let technology replace the development of skill with passive consumption, something has gone wrong. One of the successes we have had this holiday with our household, war against technology, is to sign Ezra up to Code Camp. It was a last minute thing and basically it was a, a, way, a way for him to learn about coding and it was a way for him to be creative on his screens rather than just passively consuming. And there he is being creative as we speak. Here, technology is in its proper redemptive place because it's enabling creativity rather than passive consumption. Use your tech to make things, to design things, to write and compose. Fifthly, all for creation. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us cultivate all for the creative world we are part of and responsible for stewarding. It's out of its proper place when it keeps us from engaging the wild and wonderful natural world with all our senses. When I was a kid, my grandfather used to see the shoot 'em up games we used to play and he would quote our passage from Philippians 4, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, he'd say to us. Technology can fill our minds with all kinds of ungodly, dark and evil thoughts. We have a choice to make what we watch and consume. One of the things Joe and I have found ourselves doing in lockdown is to watch shows on the ABC that focus on the outdoors and the Australian countryside, like Backroads or Restoration in Australia, often set in the country, or Rosehaven, set in Tassie. This is the best we can do under the current circumstances. Better would be to actually go out and let that technology inspire us out to the outside world. And as soon as we can, we will. Let technology lead you to embrace God's creation. And lastly, intentionality. Technology is in its proper place only when we use it with intention and care. If we aren't intentional and careful, we'll end up with technology taking over our lives and we'll be in a mess. Make rules for yourself and your household with technology. Make sure the people in your household aren't developing secret lives online. And you will have to go nuclear and be strict for this to work. Husbands and wives should know each other's passwords for their devices. Parents should know their kids' passwords, and maybe the kids don't even need to know the, the passwords. I know one of Joe's former colleagues had a safe in his house for the devices, and when the kids came home from school, all the devices went in the safe, and it came out again the next morning when they left for school. So friends, to conclude, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. So let's take control of the technology in our lives and use it so that it brings joy and happiness rather than loneliness and misery. Let us stop scrolling alone and being constantly distracted. But let us lift our eyes up to God who loves us and is working in our lives. Let us look to the people around us and be present and available to them. Amen.